Section 35 of The Three Commanders. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Brent Nasworthy. The Three Commanders by William Henry Giles Kingston. Chapter 25. Jack's anxiety became very great when, after the boats had gone away in chase of the schooner, he saw the threatening state of the weather. He waited for some time, expecting them to return, and then ordered the steam to be got up, intending to go in search of them. The gale, however, increasing and night coming on, he had but slight hopes of success. At length the engineer reported that the steam was up, and in spite of the risk he ran, he stood out of the harbor, steering in the direction he supposed they had taken. Scarcely had he got outside than the weather became worse than ever. All night long the ship continued standing backwards and forwards, over the ground where he expected to find the boats, while, as they happened at the time to be under the lee of the burning mountain, he of course could not see them. At daylight he steamed back into the harbor hoping against hope that they might have returned. But his fear was that though the natives had behaved well in the presence of a big ship, they might conduct themselves very differently, should a couple of boats only take shelter in their harbor. His doubt, therefore, was whether he should remain to wait for their arrival, or go in search of them. He did not, on his return, bring up, but, after remaining for a short time under way, he again put to sea and stood to the southward. A bright lookout was kept for the boats, as also for the schooner they had chased, for it was thought possible that, finding bad weather coming on, they might have remained on board. The island where they actually were at the time was sighted, but no signal being made from it, he stood on. He then visited several islands farther to the south, on which he thought it possible they might have landed. Towards evening, the dragon came off a small island, the character of the scenery being similar to that of those in the neighborhood. As she approached the coast, a vessel was sighted on shore with her masts gone, and it was very evident that she was a complete wreck. Should any of the people have escaped, we must do our best to help them, observed Jack to Mildmay, as they stood looking at the wreck through their glasses. I am afraid there is very little chance of that, answered Mildmay. But if they should have reached the shore alive, the natives are nearly sure to have clubbed them. We shall soon ascertain the state of the case, said Jack. In all probability she was cast away during the gale last night, and we may still be in time to rescue any who have remained on board. The dragon stood on with the lead going, as close as it was prudent to venture. When her head was put round, and a boat was sent away under charge of Mr. Large, who was directed to board the wreck if he could, but on no account to venture on shore should any considerable number of natives make their appearance. The boat pulled away, first making for the wreck. The boatswain's proceedings were watched from the deck with great interest. He first visited the wreck, and after he had been some time on board, he was seen with the assistance of his men, lowering a person into the boat. He then pulled for the shore, but just as he reached the beach, a number of savages rushed out from among the trees, 
and sent a flight of arrows at their visitors. He immediately pulled away and came back at a rapid rate to the ship. Two of the men are hit, sir, I'm afraid, he said as he came on deck, and an arrow has gone through the arm of the poor fellow we took out of the wreck, who was before almost dead of hunger and wounds. There seems now but little life in him of any sort. All I can make out about the vessel is that she is the expert of Sydney, and from the look of her hold I should think that she had a number of slaves on board, though what has become of them is more than I can tell. No time was lost by the surgeon in looking after the wounded men. His great aim was to neutralize the effects of the poison. The man taken from the wreck, notwithstanding Mr. Large's report, recovered considerably, and was able, in a faint voice, to answer the questions put to him. He said he was the mate of the vessel that she had wrecked the previous night, when the master and several of the hands had been washed overboard, that the passengers had broken loose and made their way to the shore, where, however, they had been attacked by the natives, who to the best of his belief had killed or captured every one of them. Then what became of the rest of the crew? asked Jack. The mate said he thought it possible that they had got away in the boat with the doctor and second mate during the night when there happened to be a lull but of this he was uncertain. He confessed that the vessel had been boarded by two man-of-war's boats, but the officer in command, finding nothing to detain her, had allowed the schooner to proceed, while they, he concluded, had returned from whence they came. Mr. Large, who was present at the examination of the mate, thought it just possible that the boat might have left the wreck, and if so, that she was in all probability driven on shore when those in her must have shared the fate of the so-called passengers. Mr. Large, however, volunteered to go on shore to try and ascertain what had really become of the people. The ship was, by this time, about half a mile from the beach, so that through a glass everything going forward on shore could be seen. Soon after the boat had shoved off, a considerable body of natives issued from among the trees and stood gazing at her and at the ship. They were all armed with clubs and spears and bows and arrows, but, as they did not by their gestures show any hostile intentions, the boat continued her course. The boatswain still hoping, apparently, to establish friendly relations with them. As there was little or no surf, the boat ran onto the beach. Mr. Large stepped on shore, waving a white flag in his hand, and holding out several articles which he had carried with him as presents. On seeing this, two of the natives, placing their weapons on the ground, advanced towards him. When he gave each of them a present, and signed to others to come forward and receive the remainder. As he was all the time covered by the muskets of the men in the boat, he did not appear to consider that he was in any danger. As soon as the natives had received their presents, they retreated to a little distance and sat down, he imitating their example. He then, by signs, endeavored to make them understand that he wished to know what had become of the people who had landed from the vessel on the rocks. They seemed to understand him, and replied by signs that the people had gone away into the interior. He, on this, tried to make them understand that he wished them to be brought back. They made no reply, but talked eagerly among themselves, and he could not tell whether they intended to comply with his demands. Still, they appeared to be as friendly as at first. He was still sitting on the ground waiting for their answer, when their party was increased by several other persons who advanced from the larger body in the background. 
they were all young men, who, though they had laid aside their bows and spears, still retained their clubs. Having seated themselves, they made signs that they also wanted presents. When they found that they were not forthcoming, they got up, and approaching the boatswain, who had also risen to his feet, one of them tried to snatch his cap, while another seized a cutlass which he had buckled round his waist. On this, with a blow of his fist, he knocked the savage down, and was in the act of drawing his weapon to defend himself when another black, who had sprung up behind him, dealt him a blow on the head with a club, which felled him to the ground. So rapidly had this taken place that the boat's crew were not prepared to fire till they saw him fall. They instantly poured in a volley, which killed two of the savages, while the rest bounded off towards their companions. The seamen, then reloading, sprang on shore, in the hopes of bringing off the boatswain, whom they supposed to be killed. All that had occurred was seen from the ship, and Jack immediately ordered two shells to be thrown in the direction of the savages, which, falling into their midst just at the moment that they were drawing their arrows to shoot at the seamen, drove them back into the forest. The arrows thus flew wide of their mark, and the seamen were able to convey Mr. Large to the boat, and to shove off without molestation. Several other shells were fired in the direction taken by the natives, who immediately scampered off, leaving several dead behind them. On the return of the boat alongside, Mr. Large was seen sitting up, when, with some assistance, he managed to get on deck, notwithstanding an ugly gash he had received at the back of his head. "'I'll never trust those black rascals again!' he exclaimed. "'They very nearly did for me, just as I thought I was getting on so well with them. "'I only hope our boats won't have landed on their shores, or they'll receive an unpleasant welcome.' "'I trust not, Mr. Large,' said Jack who, on having such evidence of the savage disposition of the natives, was becoming more and more anxious about Green and the midshipmen. However, you did your best, and now you must let the surgeon look after you, for that wound in your head is an ugly one. The boat was, after this, again dispatched, to bring off any arms or articles of value which could be found on board the schooner, and then, as she was a perfect wreck, she was set on fire to prevent the savages from benefiting by her loss. This done, the ship proceeded along the coast, when a little farther on she opened a village, which there was every probability belonged to their late treacherous assailants. A couple of rockets fired into it quickly set it in flames, and another village in the neighborhood was treated in the same manner. Jack considered that this punishment was necessary to teach the natives that they could not attack white men with impunity. Jack was, by this time, almost in despair of recovering the boats but would not yet abandon the attempt to find them. If they had escaped foundering or being driven on a reef, they must have reached the shores of one of the neighboring islands. He resolved, therefore, to go back to Santa Cruz, and then to steam round every island in succession, narrowly examining their shores. The ship accordingly stood back to Santa Cruz, though Jack scarcely expected to find the boats in the harbor. A lookout was kept on every side, and at night blue lights were burned frequently to attract their attention should they be in the neighborhood. In the morning watch, just before daybreak, as the ship was gliding smoothly on with a light breeze, a hail was heard on the weather bow. It was so faint that had the screw been going at the time, it would not have been noticed. Mr. Mildmay, who was the officer of the watch, ordered the yards to be braced up, and kept the ship in the direction from whence the hail came 
Again it was heard, louder. There's no doubt about it, he exclaimed. That must come from the boats. Call the commander. In a minute Jack was on deck. At length the two boats could be seen under sail, running down towards the ship. She was immediately hove to, and in another minute they were alongside. Instead of the woebegone, half-starved beings Jack expected to see, he was delighted to find them all in good condition and excellent spirits. Green and Tom gave a rapid account of their adventures. After leaving the island, they had gone to Santa Cruz, where, not liking the manners of the natives, after obtaining a fresh supply of water, they immediately put to sea again in search of the dragon, which Green felt pretty sure would not be far off. No one was at all the worse for the adventure, and Green's old shipmate, Pat Casey, from being able to speak the language of the natives, proved of great assistance during the remainder of the cruise. He, to be sure, did not always make himself understood, but that might have been because the natives spoke a different dialect to the one he had acquired. Numberless atrocities were brought to light. Some committed by the sandalwood trader, and kidnappers, who were generally the aggressors, but others by the natives, who had treacherously cut off several boats' crews and murdered numerous individuals, who had been surprised, much as was Mr. Large. Where the crime could be brought home to the natives, they were punished by the destruction of their villages and canoes. In one or two instances in which the chiefs had been implicated, they were carried off and left on other islands at a distance, from whence they were not likely to be able to return. It was a far more difficult matter to get the white men convicted and punished for the foul deeds of which they had been guilty in these regions. At length the dragon's course was shaped for Sydney, where Jack had the satisfaction of finding the Aeolus, which had arrived a short time before him. Adair had numerous adventures to recount, very similar to those which the dragon had met with. The chief satisfaction they experienced on their arrival was to receive letters from home. Their wives were bearing their separation as well as could be expected, and gave them very minute accounts of all their doings. Julia was living at Halliburton, and Lucy had been paying a long visit to the Admiral and Mrs. Deborah, both of whom were somewhat ailing. The Admiral could rarely do more than take a few turns on the esplanade, sitting down between each on one of the benches facing the sea, to watch the vessels as they ran in and out of the harbor. The officers of the two ships were received with much hospitality by the inhabitants of Sydney. They were made honorary members of a club equal to any in London, and balls, dinner parties, and picnics were got up for their entertainment. Indeed, after their long absence from civilized life, they very naturally thought Sydney a magnificent city, as indeed it is, rising as it does gradually from its superb harbor and thus exhibiting to advantage its fine public buildings and substantial residences. In the suburbs were seen a number of beautiful villas, many of considerable size, while cabs, omnibuses, and other public conveyances, and handsome private equipages abounded. Indeed, carriages were kept by families who would not have dreamed of maintaining them at home. Not a few of the officers made up their minds to return and settle in the country. The midshipmen, for a wonder, did not lose their hearts, possibly on account of the small encouragement they received from the young ladies, who literally and metaphorically looked down upon them, being, as a rule, much taller than they were, and well able to distinguish between the various ranks in the service. 
Indeed, some little disappointment was felt when it was discovered that the two commanders were married men. The ships, having filled up their coal bunks, shaped a course for the Sandwich Islands. As it was important to husband their coal, the greater portion of the passage was performed under sail. Numerous islands were seen, several of them being regular coral islands, with lagoons in the center, not more than a couple of miles in circumference, and some even much smaller, and rising within a few feet out of the water. About six weeks after leaving Sydney, Oahu, in which Honolulu, the capital of the Sandwich Islands, is situated, was sighted. The ships ran on and came to an anchor in the outer roads opposite the city, which is very conspicuous from the sea, and has a somewhat imposing appearance, with its numerous public and private edifices spread out along the shore, and churches and tall spires in their midst. The coast had a barren appearance, very unlike the beautiful region everyone had expected to find it. Far behind the town, the land rising into high ridges, divided by deep and narrow ravines amid which but little vegetation was visible. While the surf in a succession of long rollers broke along the reefs on each side of the inner anchorage, threatening any vessel with destruction which might have parted from her anchors. The next day a portion of each ship's company got leave to go on shore. Tom, Desmond, and Archie were once more together. As they pulled in, they were highly delighted at seeing a party of the natives sporting in the surf on their surfboards. Now they swam out through the breakers, amid which it seemed impossible any human being could exist. Then, mounting to the summit of a huge roller, one of them would leap up on his board in a standing posture and glide down the side of the watery hill, balancing himself in a wonderful manner. Another would perform the same passage while sitting, or a third would throw himself full length along his board. In the same manner they would return to the shore, fearlessly approaching the surf through which they made their way to the beach. Some twenty or thirty young men and lads were thus sporting together. On landing, the midshipmen were assailed by the owners of horses, much in the same way that people landing in European cities are by porters or drivers of vehicles. The Kanakas, as the natives are called, were habited in every variety of costume, some fully clothed, others with little more than pieces of native cloth round their waists. Though the women were all decently, if not elegantly clad in long calico gowns, reaching from the shoulders down to the feet, generally of gay colors. Both men and women appeared good-natured and ready to laugh and joke with their visitors. There was no quarreling about the horses. The midshipmen were soon suited with steeds, on which they hoped to enjoy a pleasant ride. Their party was increased by Green, who had taken charge of another set of youngsters. All being mounted, away they galloped across the plain at the back of the town. They had not gone far, when they overtook a cavalcade of fair damsels, seated on men's saddles, with long skirts fastened round their waists, and their heads adorned with wreaths of flowers. They answered the midshipmen's salutations with shouts of laughter, and either supposing that they had had an invitation to do so, or, which is not improbable, not thinking it necessary, they joined company and away midshipmen and maidens galloped with a speed which would have tried less hardy steeds. Before long they overtook other parties of girls. On they went till a hill was reached, over which they scampered, descending at breakneck speed, into a plain of still larger dimensions on the other side. 
Here the road compelled them to keep closer together, as it passed between several sugar plantations. Tom had fixed upon a pretty Kanaka as his companion, who could speak a few words of English, as was the case with many of the others. Indeed, most of the young ladies, though not very rigid in their manners, were fairly educated and remarkably intelligent. Away they went for several miles, till one of the elder damsels, looking at the sun, declared that it was time to go back again. And wheeling round their steeds, they returned as fast as they had come. On nearing the town, they made signs to the young officers to fall into the rear, while they advanced at a more sedate pace, when they scattered in various directions to their different homes. This was only one of their many excursions on shore. Honolulu is a capital city, though a small one. Few cities of its size contain more churches and schools, but unhappily, they are not all of one denomination. For Protestants, Episcopalians, and Roman Catholics have of late years entered the field with the Presbyterians or Independents, by whose means the natives were converted to Christianity. It now boasted of a cathedral and an English bishop, who, while the ships were there, headed a grand procession, with banners and bands playing, terminated by a display of fireworks and healths drunk in champagne opposite the king's palace. But whether it was of a religious or merely social character, our midshipmen's friends were unable to determine. A considerable amount of trade is carried on, the chief export being sugar to the United States. There are merchants and inhabitants of all nations, but by far the greater number are Americans, who hold also some of the chief offices of state. There was a theater, in which not only plays but operas were performed, and there were various other places of amusement. It was indeed difficult to believe that comparatively a few years ago the country was sunk in heathen darkness, especially when it was reported that few kingdoms are better governed, and no people taken as a whole more orderly and contented. Happily for itself having no harbors of sufficient size to afford shelter to men of war, or which are capable of being defended, it is likely to remain as heretofore independent, unless republican principles should prevail, and the people involuntarily join themselves to the United States. The then king was said to be an amiable and enlightened gentleman, as well educated as most of the European sovereigns were but a few years ago, and the young dowager Queen Emma, who has English blood in her veins, was pretty, sweet-tempered, sensible, and altogether a most excellent and attractive person. Still, notwithstanding the attention the officers received from the inhabitants, they agreed that Honolulu was not a place at which they would wish to remain for any length of time. "'Hurrah!' cried Tom, rushing into the berth one afternoon. "'We are to be off tomorrow morning for Hawaii, and if there's time, some of us will have a chance of visiting the volcano of Kilauea, and the very spot where Captain Cook was killed.' The commander told me I might tell you, and I advise you fellows who haven't got your clean linen off to send for it without delay, or you may chance to have to wait for it till our return, which I hope may be never. Several of Tom's messmates jumped up on hearing this to follow his advice. As the Kanaka washerwomen were not likely to prove more honest than those of other places, or to return washclothes before the time agreed on, the next morning the two ships were steaming out of the roads. For a few hours they brought up in the far-famed bay of Keala Keku, on the north side of which was a rock, 
protected from the swell by a point of lava rocks, thus affording a convenient landing place. Near it, at the foot of a coconut tree, is the spot where the celebrated navigator breathed his last, and on the still remaining stump of the tree was nailed a sheet of copper, on which was inscribed an account of the event. Most of the officers, having visited the spot, and inspected its surroundings with such copies of Cook's voyages in their hands as were to be found on board, the ships steamed out again for Hilo Bay, on the other side of the island. Round the shores appeared groves of tall coconut and richly tinted breadfruit trees, with extensive plantations of sugarcane beyond, while amid them flowed numberless murmuring streams. Above this lower level rose a succession of pasture lands, surmounted by belts of trees, changing their character from the vegetation of the tropics to that of the more northern regions of the world. The country indeed sloped upwards twenty miles or more, forming the side of an elevated tableland in the center of the island, out of which sprang towards the sky two mountains of prodigious height, that of Mauna Loa, the nearest, in the form of a smooth dome, and Mauna Kea, surmounted by nine snow-covered cones. Above the tableland appeared a silvery cloud, showing the whereabouts of the fearful crater of Kilauea, which it was the intention of the two commanders to visit on the following morning. As night closed in, its position was rendered still more visible by the glare of the ever-burning fires within the crater reflected on the cloud. At early dawn, Jack and Adair, with a party of their ship's companies and as many of the officers as could be spared, and who wished to go, started for the shore. Jack took Tom and Archie and Mr. Mildmay, who undertook to narrate the events of the expedition in verse. The second lieutenant declared that he had no wish to toil up a steep mountain for the sake of seeing a huge pit full of fire and smoke, so that he willingly remained on board instead of the first lieutenant. Several others, however, had more curiosity. Adair took Desmond and three or four of his gunroom officers and midshipmen. Now recollect that none of you must run the risk of being turned into cinders by tumbling into the crater, observed Jack as they were setting off. I rather think that gas would be the product of such an immersion, observed the doctor. There wouldn't be so much solid matter of you left in five seconds as I could put into my snuff-box, so look out for yourselves. Horses and guides were in readiness, for of late years the once mysterious residence of the goddess Pele has become one of the lions of the world. Forward, cried the commander, and the party trotted on, headed by their guide. Eight miles on they passed a vast chasm after which they began to ascend more rapidly than before. In a short time they entered a region of black lava with hollows in it full of water, into which the natives on foot plunged to cool themselves. Trees, however, were still seen, which had sprung up amid the once burning mass, and bushes of various sorts, among them strawberries, not here low plants, but vines of large size bearing delicious fruit. Just below the edge of the plateau was a forest, and on rising above it, the vast dome of Mauna Loa of a bronze hue rose before them, against the deep blue of a tropical sky. They barely had time to reach the edge of the crater and to pitch their tents, which had been sent on before, when the sun set, and the surrounding darkness revealed two lakes of liquid fire down in the depths of a vast basin, with perpendicular sides several miles in circumference and an apparently level bottom. For some time they gazed at the scene, 
not a word was uttered. Even the midshipmen failed to cut a joke. No loud sounds were heard, no reports, as many of the party had expected. But instead there came up from the bottom of the abyss a low, bubbling murmur, like that emitted by a thick liquid when boiling, for to nothing else could it be likened. Guided by some of the natives, Jack and Terence, with the three midshipmen, climbed down to the ledge some hundred feet below the plateau, when they found themselves apparently not much above the margin of the largest of the two lakes of fire. "'There are a good many things I would dare to do, but I shouldn't like to jump into that,' said Tom, as he watched the mighty volume of lava in a furious state of ebullition, forming fiery waves which ran ceaselessly across the lake towards a wide abyss to the southward. Sometimes the whole seemed rising, and suddenly, at the distance of scarcely three hundred yards, a vast column spouted up to the height of sixty or seventy feet, almost as quickly subsiding. And the next instant, another rose still nearer to them, which made even Jack spring back, for so near did it appear that he could not help fancying that it might fall upon them. After watching this wonderful phenomenon for some time, the rest of the party were very glad when Terence proposed that they should climb up from whence they came, an operation which took them the best part of an hour. The early part of the night was spent before they could manage to go to sleep, and even then few of them could get the terrific scene they had witnessed out of their heads. They had not been long asleep when all hands were aroused by a report like thunder, which came up from the vast lake boiling beneath them. Everybody started up. Billy Blueblazes, seizing hold of Desmond, alongside whom he was sleeping, exclaimed, "'Is the volcano going to burst out and smother us? Won't it be better to run for it?' "'Hurrah! Sure it will be running faster than we can,' answered Desmond, who wasn't quite comfortable, though he didn't wish to show it. On looking over the cliff, however, the lake was seen boiling away as before, sending up here and there spouts of fire.' which, at the distance they were below them, looked like flashes from firearms at night, though probably fifty or sixty feet in height. No one, however, felt inclined to turn in again for some time, in spite of the cool air which circled around them. As they looked over the crater, the shadows from its mighty walls were cast upwards, reaching, it seemed, to the sky, and giving it the appearance of being clothed in a dark cloud. "'It is very fine,' cried Terence at length, but if we wish to enjoy our ramble to-morrow, we shall be wise to get a little more sleep. His advice was followed. After breakfast next morning, several of the party started off to walk round the crater, while the more adventurous ones, including the two commanders, Tom and Desmond, with a couple of Kanaka guides, again descended another part of the cliff to the ledge. On looking at the spot where they had stood on the previous evening, a thrilling sensation came over them as they observed that it had disappeared in the burning lava below, the cause undoubtedly of the noise which had startled them during the night. Still, they were anxious to get close down to the boiling lava, and obtain some of it in a state of fusion. Their guide confessed that many had gone and come back safe, but that he considered it an expedition of no slight danger. Probably at that moment neither Jack nor Terence were thinking of their wives at home. They had gone some way, when suddenly the whole mass surged upwards, and the lava on which they were walking began to crack, while terrific reports were heard. Back! Back! cried the guide. They needed no second warning. 
but keeping apart made for the upper ledge. All had gamed it, except Tom, who, being at a distance from the rest, made for a part which when he got up to it he found inaccessible. Close behind him at that moment the crust was rent asunder by a terrific heave, and a vast jet of molten lava, with a fearful noise, rose high into the air. Almost roasted by the heat, he cried out for help. In another moment it would have been too late, when the guide, hearing his voice amid the uproar, leant over and just able to grasp his arm, though his own face was burnt in the attempt, jerked him up with a strength few of Tom's companions could have exerted, and placed him in comparative safety. Not a moment was to be lost, for the seething mass was fast gaining on them. Up the cliffs they climbed, till they gained a place of safety. "'We've had enough of the inside of the crater,' said Jack, as he thought how nearly Tom had been lost. And they made their way again to the upper rim of the vast basin. The larger lake, they calculated, was 1,190 yards long, and about 700 wide. The smaller, nearly circular, and upwards of 300 yards across. The lava continued rising till it overflowed a large portion of the hitherto black surface, in some places appearing like a vast sheet of liquid fire, in others running along in serpentine courses. As their time was short, as soon as the party who had gone round the crater arrived, the tents were packed up, and they commenced their descent by the way they had come. The next day the ships weighed, and shaped their course for Vancouver's Island under sail. Jack and Terence were eager to reach their destination, in the hopes of finding letters awaiting them there from England. In about little more than three weeks they entered Fuca Straits, up which they ran for about sixty miles, with magnificent scenery on both sides, though desolate in the extreme, till they reached Esquimalt Harbor in Vancouver's Island, about three miles from which stands Victoria, the capital. Jack and Terence eagerly awaited the letter-bag, which, as soon as their arrival was known, would be sent off to them. Jack was reading his letters when Adair came on board. Jack, he said, the kind old Admiral and Mrs. Deborah have both gone, and have left Lucy and me the whole of their property. Our good old friend's dead, exclaimed Jack in a tone of grief. I can scarcely realize the fact. I can remember him from my earliest days, always the same kind and wise, and hearty and full of spirits. I saw a great change in him before we left, but still hope to be greeted by his cheery voice on our return. How my father and mother will miss him! I especially must ever hold his memory in grateful remembrance, said Adair with feeling. For Lucy's sake, I am most thankful that he and his kind sister have left us their property, as indeed I am for my own. I must be off for England as soon as I can get superseded, as it is absolutely necessary to settle their affairs. I wish you had as good an excuse as I have. I heartily congratulate you, Terence, said Jack, but I am not sure that I shall not also have to go home before long, for Julia writes me word that her father is very ill and much wishes to see me. As we have already served two years, I don't think that the Admiralty will object to supersede us as it will give them an opportunity of obliging some of their friends. After the two young commanders had somewhat got over the sorrow they naturally felt at hearing of the admiral's death, their spirits recovered, and when together they could talk of little else than their proposed return. They hoped to be sent down to Panama, 
where their ships could wait till their successors arrived. They possibly, on this account, took less interest in Vancouver's island than they might otherwise have done. Though present at a naval regatta at Esquimalt, when the quiet harbor assumed a wonderfully gay appearance by the arrival of numerous steamers and boats of various descriptions from Victoria, and also at several cricket matches played between the settlers and the officers of the ship's companies, and at a ball at Government House. The midshipmen voted the ball a decided failure, as far as they were concerned, in consequence of the small amount of attention they received from the fairer portion of the guests, though they considered the cricket matches in regatta very good fun. At length, the Dragon and Aeolus were ordered to Panama. Soon after their arrival, two officers, who had come across the isthmus by railway, made their appearance on board with the welcome information that they were to supersede them. They were both old shipmates, in whom they could place thorough confidence. They therefore left those who had so long sailed with them, with less regret than would have been the case had they confided them to the charge of strangers. Notwithstanding the distance they had to pull, their respective midshipmen begged leave to man the boats which conveyed them on shore. And a few minutes after landing they were seated in the railway car, which rattled on through the rich vegetation of the tropics, across the famed isthmus to Cologne the port on its eastern side. Thence, proceeding by the mail steamer, they safely reached Southampton, where Julia and Lucy were waiting to receive them. The important affairs which had brought them home took some time to settle, and Colonel Gifford soon afterwards dying. Jack found himself in possession of a comfortable income, which few people were better able to enjoy. He frequently heard from Tom, who liked his new commander, and gave an amusing account of the subsequent adventures he met with in the Pacific. That young gentleman never alluded to the fair Feodorovna, and in a letter Jack received from Higson, he learned that she had married, not long after her sister, a Russian gentleman of good fortune, though she never failed to inquire after her youthful admirer, hoping that in ten years or so he would find an English wife to suit him. Dick Needham got charge of a ship in ordinary, and nothing gave him so much delight as to receive a visit from his old shipmates, who never failed to go and see him when they went to Portsmouth. Ben Snatchblock remained in charge of the Stella, and every summer when Murray was at home she was to be seen trim and taut at her old moorings off Barkeldean. The three commanders paid their wives the compliment not to apply in a hurry for employment, though they all at different times had commands offered them, which, however unwilling they were to leave home, they felt it their duty to accept. They were in due time posted, and all three are now admirals. End of section 35 End of the Three Commanders by William Henry Giles Kingston